You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Man, it's really good to be here with you guys. We're we're glad you came to Kingsway to let us just kind of celebrate Jesus with you and talk a little bit about what God's doing in us and in the world. We want to welcome everybody watching at home online right now. Welcome, even if it's later in this week or year or years down the road, we're really glad you're tuning in. Maybe God will speak to you today. We'll see. So we're in this series called Reverse the Curse. And uh, last week where we went was we looked at this impact of the way sin has ruined our world. If you don't know what sin is, sin is where we miss the mark and we do what we should not do against God. Now because of that, because of sin, we all carry this thing called shame. Shame. And if you missed last week, I ran into somebody who said, wow, like that message was so good, so helpful, so powerful, but I felt like I need to go hear it like four more times to get everything you said. I joked online, like I really want to write a book about this series. I feel like it's about a 10 or 12 week series. I'm doing it five weeks. So today's sermon will be two hours long. Um, Actually, I'll probably just not get to go as deep as I want to go, and you'll leave you with lots of questions and thoughts. You just have to go online, listen again. I trust the Spirit to continue to lead you and until many years from now when I write the book. But here's what we said shame is. Shame is the sense that there is something wrong with or not good enough about me. A sense that there's something wrong with or not good enough about me. That plays out in a lot of different ways in all of us. And here's what I told you last week. Summarize all of last week in this message. Basically, there are three kinds of shame or three points of origin from shame. I may come up with a fourth or a fifth at some point, but I think we see all of these in the garden. So point number one, <clears throat> we have sinned against God. What we did, we weren't supposed to do. So we feel the gaze of God on our hearts and lives. Number two, we, uh, we, we, other people have sinned against us. So When we sin against God, it hurts other people. When they sin against God, it hurts us. And so we feel, we have this sense of shame because we feel the gaze of others upon our hearts and lives, saying that we're not good enough. We don't measure up. We feel judged by them. Sometimes because of things we've done before God that wasn't right, and sometimes has nothing to do with it. But consequently, we feel the weight of their decisions over us. And then number three, because I'm a sinner and you're a sinner, we live in a world full of sinners. I know, right? Aren't you glad you came to church today? Welcome to Kingsway. And uh, because of that, we live in an unsafe and insecure world, a world where everything is not just, you know, fun and easy. It's hard work, and there's a lot of tension, and there's a lot of mistrust, and there's a lot of pain in our world. So therefore, we feel this sense of insecurity and not necessarily being good enough or measuring up or knowing how we're going to make it in the world because the world is an unsafe place. And that's a summary of all of last week. So here's what we learned. Because of shame, because of shame, We all have one major byproduct. Ready? It's called anxiety and fear. Anxiety and fear. Now, what I really want to couch this in today, and this is really a much, much, much longer, bigger talk than I have time for, but I believe that part of what we feel in this life and in this world comes from that nature versus nurture discussion. Have you ever read anything about this? All right, so... Which one is it? You ready? How many people say it's nature? How many people say it's nurture? How many people think it's both? How many people have never heard of this discussion, have no opinion whatsoever? How many people are Googling it on their phone right now? How many people are playing a video game on their phone right now? All right, anyway. Nature versus nurture. This whole idea of, so was I born this way or was I trained to be this way by the world that I live in? Well, since finding out kind of the DNA and the gene code, 
we've noticed that there aren't a lot of things in the DNA code that we can point to and say, I'm this way because of that. Obviously, there are some things like hair color, eye color, those kinds of things. There aren't a lot of behavioral things. There are some fascinating, and I wish I had more time. I won't dig into it today, but you can go Google epigenetics. You're like, what it'll what it? Don't do it now. Epigenetics, they aren't finding changes in the actual gene code, but they are finding the way the gene code interacts with itself is changed based off of traumatic experiences in life. And nobody knows what the impact of those things are, but it's quite possible the cells in your body are remembering the traumas of your life, which is so fascinating for where we are today. Because while I think it's probably, yes, it's both and, I think there is a huge, huge, huge part of life in general that is nurture. We have been impacted by the world we live in. It's not everything, but it's a lot of things. And so that's important because what the Bible talks about is this idea of generational sin. When you look in the Bible, every time we see a mother and a son, or a mother and a daughter, or a father and a son, or a father and a daughter, every time we get some sort of generational characters, we can actually see patterns in them that are consistent. Solomon looks a lot like David. You can even the Herod, you can even argue that Herods and the New Testament look a lot alike. There are a lot of characters that look the same. I want to dig in on a particular family because we're going to spend the next three weeks talking about that family. In fact, next week we're going to talk to the men. Now, everything I'm saying to the men next week will apply to the women. The week after that, I'm going to talk to the women, and everything I say to the women will apply to the men, but we're going to drill into the story about a man and drill into the story about some women. That's what we're going to do. So I just want you to encourage you, wives, do not make your husbands come. Tell him he needs to come and figure out some way to motivate him. But if you tell him he has to come, guess what he won't do? Come. And men, don't tell your wives they have to come because you came and you got beat up. But if you want them to come, Actually, it's not going to be like that at all. But if you want them to come, it might help if you come first. Make a deal, right? I'll come if you come, all right? So you want to be here the next two weeks. I promise this. But let's look at the family. The family is the one found in Genesis that we talked about in January. It starts with a guy named Abraham. So two patterns I just want to show you. Abraham <clears throat> is told by God he's going to have a son, and that son's name ends up being Isaac. Abraham doesn't trust God to take care of life for him and do what God said he would do. So Abraham takes matters into his own hands. And he ends up sleeping with his wife's maidservant, Hagar, and gives birth to a boy named Ishmael. It's all in the Bible. I didn't make this stuff up. Now, that's important because when God comes along and says, Ishmael is not the child that I promised to you. I am going to give you a son, just like I said I would. Isaac, when he's finally born, um, Abraham treats Isaac differently than he treats Ishmael. Which is fascinating because later Isaac has two boys, Jacob and Esau, and he treats Esau different than he treats Jacob. Jacob later has 12 sons, and he has one, and then later a second one who is his favorite, Joseph in the coat of many colors. That guy, he treats him different than he treats all the other brothers. Do you see a pattern here? I wonder where they learned that. If you were to go into another story, even more clear, even more fascinating, Abraham, um, twice in his life, twice in the Bible, that's one of the things I love about the Bible. You're like, well, I don't know if I could trust the Bible. Really? Because the Bible is the one book that makes its heroes look as bad as they look. It never tries to gloss over the sins and the failures of its heroes. But it also isn't afraid to tell you how God's grace and goodness overcame their failures. So in Genesis, Abraham not once but twice lied and said that his wife was not his wife. And a foreign king took his wife as his bride in order to have his way with her. And every woman in the room goes, really? Like, what kind of dude is that? What's fascinating is the only chapter in the entire Bible dedicated to Isaac, Abraham's son, the only chapter. 
So every chapter before this chapter is about Abraham and then Isaac. Every chapter after this chapter is about Isaac and Jacob. It's about the story of God moving forward. But there's one chapter dedicated to Isaac. And that one chapter is dedicated to telling us how Isaac did the same thing to his wife that Abraham did to his wife. Well, isn't that interesting? So, remember that thing when you were a kid and you promised, I am not going to become just like my parents. I got bad news for you. So, the nature versus nurture thing. I believe with all my heart, it is so much of a nurture thing. Not everything, but a thing, a lot of thing, a big thing. I believe in many ways you've done one of two things. You've probably either done the exact same thing your parents did, even though you swore you wouldn't. You did the same thing your parents did, or you did the pendulum swing, and you became the opposite of what your parents were, throwing out the proverbial baby with the bathwater, and you left out the good of your parents in also trying to leave out the bad. So the goal is to not become like your parents or your grandparents or blah, 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 blah. The goal is to become like Jesus Christ, the only perfect human who's ever walked the face of the planet. And you wonder why his brothers had a hard time with him when they were growing up. So, yes, I get that from the Bible, but we don't have time for that today. All right. So the number one byproduct of shame is anxiety and fear. About 10 years ago, my wife and I started doing something called a home study in order to adopt. And we, in 2009, brought home our now oldest son. Um, not now, he's been our oldest son for 10 years. Uh, he just had his ninth birthday is what was in my head. It's crazy. Like, I came here four months after he was born. You all are getting old because that was nine years ago. And um, it was crazy. As a part of our home study and the work that we've done since, the books I've read, the conferences I've been to, um, there is a lot that I've learned. So everything I'm about to share with you, I learned at some point. And here's what I thought. So praying God all the time, God, give me wisdom, give me wisdom, give me wisdom. Help me be a better dad. Help me be a better leader, better husband, better whatever. And um, God answered that prayer. And he gave me a lot of wisdom as it relates to my oldest son. I was like, thank you, God, for answering my prayers. And then what I found is I was studying and as I went, wow, there's so much wisdom in here for my church. God, thank you for giving me wisdom for my family and also giving me wisdom to share with my church. Then, as I went through the process further, I learned that God was giving me wisdom not just for my son, not just for my church, but for my parents, and especially for my dad. So many, many kids who've been through the foster care system, through adoption, many of them come from traumatic experiences, backgrounds, you know, being ripped away from your family and given to somebody else. Even in the best of situations, it's a traumatic experience. And so I learned through all that. I went, wow, God, thank you for giving me insight and mercy and grace towards my parents, even towards my dad, who grew up in a very traumatic environment, a very painful environment as a child growing up. And then as I got further, uh, God continued to reveal to me, gosh, this isn't just for your son. This isn't just for your church. This isn't just for your dad and your parents. I like this stuff. You know where it's going, right? That's for your wife. No, it's for me. Really, over this last year, and this was, this, was a, this was a huge dot to connect for me. It was like, wow, I just assumed this was about everybody else. Ready? Put your seatbelt on. You might want to download the app. My warning to you right now is uh, this is not about your spouse. It's not about your parents. It's not about your kids, your friends, everybody in your life who's messed up. All right? As I go through this, I want you to listen. God what do I need to hear from you today? So what you need to understand is I'm about to tell you the four ways, the four ways that we try to control the world around us. And I've talked about this before, so you've been here, you heard it, trust me, you probably need to hear it again, I do. 
the four ways that we try to control the world around us. Why and what do we do about it? Ready? Number one, number one, aggressive control. Aggressive control. Aggressive control is when you go on the offensive, you know what that is, right? You're not on the defensive, you're on the offensive, enough to make what I want to happen, happen. The reason I do this is because I am afraid things will not be okay unless I do. So, extreme versions of this, right? Think about it like a dial. On one extreme, you got this. On the other extreme, you got that. So extreme versions of this. This could look like hitting, cussing at, threatening, yelling, screaming. Like, it's extreme. And there are, again, like multiple layers, like a dial, right? There's everything in between. Uh, Yesterday, my wife was out of town uh, at a conference. And uh, so I had my kids all weekend. And I wanted to make the house as clean as I possibly could. So when she came home, she came home to a nice, serene environment. And um, yes, I know, I know. Go ahead. Yes, thank you. I know, I'm awesome. So anyway, (laughs) I'm joking. But I really wanted to do that. But here's the thing. So I'm feeling stressed about doing that because I want to give that to her. She didn't ask me to do that. I felt like I wanted to do that. So I'm stressing my kids out to bring that about. And the way that I'm doing that is I'm telling, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. I'm like barking out orders, right? I'm being aggressively controlling them. We're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And then when they're not doing what I need them to do, you know what I did is I threatened them. Now, I didn't threaten them maybe in the way that you do with your kids. If you need to sit down and talk to somebody, we have great counselors we recommend. But the way that I was threatening them was I was dangling the carrot of the Xbox over their head. So if you don't clean, you will not get to play Xbox. What I'm actually doing is I'm increasing their anxiety level. I'm making them more anxious. Ah, we don't know what to clean. We don't know where to go. We don't know what to do. Well, if you don't get it done, well, what is it? I don't have time to tell you. I'm trying to clean. (laughs) Sound like your home? Now, here's the question to ask yourself. What in the world does the Xbox have to do with them cleaning the house? Nothing. Do they need to clean the house because I held the Xbox over their head? No. They need to clean the house because why? You hated this answer when you were a kid. You're a parent. (laughs) Because I'm your parent. And this is what we're going to do. Now, there's a way to do this that doesn't create anxiety. It'll just take as long as it takes. It could take us five hours to clean up 10 minutes worth of toys. It just means we're not moving on until this is done. And I'll sit here with you as long as it takes. And I'll walk you through it as long as it takes. But you'll feel safe in the world because there won't be somebody running around barking out orders, threatening you to see how it impacts it. On the other extreme, uh, aggressive control is when I take matters into my own hands. So the example I like to use often because it's not a personal one that's ever happened that I can remember. If it did, I don't remember. And uh, so let's just say, for instance, you're on your way home and your spouse calls and says, hey, I'm making dinner. I need you to bring milk home with you uh, when you come home. And you get home and they say, where's the milk? And you say, oh, I totally forgot. And they say, don't worry about it. I'll go get it. And they say, no, I got it. And they grab the keys and they slam the door and they drive to get the milk, Right. Let's just use the situation that the husband came home and the wife's at home. I'm not assuming that. The wife's making the dinner. I'm just saying, let's just use that as a situation. What's going on in the wife's mind right now, right? Every wife in the room knows exactly what's going on. What's going on? First of all, if I stay here, I got to deal with the kids and dinner for another half hour. That doesn't seem fair. Second of all, now that you forgot the milk and didn't bring it home with you, it's going to add a half hour to the schedule. Dinner's not going to be ready on time. The food's going to be cold or it's going to be burnt. It's going to push dinner back, which is going to push homework back, which is going to push bath time back, which means everybody's going to be in bed late. I'm not going to get time to myself. I'm not going to get the things I need done. And it's all because you didn't bring milk home. <laughs> Am I close? Make checks payable, too. Um, now, what happens when you grab the keys and run out the door is... You aggressively controlled the situation. You were afraid, so you took matters into your own hands to bring about the outcome you believed needed to happen. But who created the problem? 
he did by coming home and not have the milk. Now, where we make a mistake is we assume they did it on purpose. And they might have when we get to the second controlling behavior, maybe. But that's another stuff. We'll get there, right? So hang on. But by not putting the burden back on them, you aggressively control it, which then just creates more chaos in the home. He created the problem. He had to fix it. If that meant getting all the kids in the bathroom, diapers changed, clothes changed, socks and shoes on, coats on, hats on, whatever it needs to be, in the rain, in the snow, in the car, to the store, get the milk, come home, do the homework, do the baths, whatever he has to do, he created the problem. But see, we do this all the time in the world of addiction when we take the consequence, the burden off of somebody else for their actions and their behaviors, and we don't let them feel the weight of it, then people just stay stuck in their pattern. Are you with me? In more subtle ways, um, well, that would be a more subtle way. We better move on. I'm going to go to the clock. All right. Withdrawn control. Withdrawn control. This is the second one. Withdrawn control. This is when uh, you pull away enough from a situation in order to control the outcome of the actual situation. And the reason I do this is because I am afraid I can't make happen what I feel I need or want to happen. So my withdrawal protects me or gives me the power to influence the situation's outcome. Are you with me? There are, again, there are many uh, obvious and subtle ways this happens. So obvious would be blatant avoidance. Uh, at my last church, so it's nobody you would know. At my last church, and if they were watching online, they'll know exactly who they are. But at my last church, we had an office area. There was like a big rectangle, and then on the outside, another rectangle. So there was a hallway that went all the way around. And I had a staff member whose office was next to mine that I had a conflict with. Except for instead of dealing with the conflict, I would, instead of coming you know, to work and actually working it out with them, I would go all the way, the long way around the office area. <laughs> now, granted, I was 24 or whatever I was at the time. At 41, I don't do this as often as I used to, and um, <laughs> I was avoiding them, and you know exactly what this is like, right? I was trying to control the outcome, so some of you who still haven't talked to that family member, still haven't gone to your parents, still aren't dealing with something with your kids, your spouse, your neighbor, whatever it is, you're just hoping if you avoid it long enough, it'll go away, but it never works, does it? My mentor, my friend, Dr. Walker said, man, we always think time heals all wounds. It doesn't. The right activity over time does. So, withdrawing control also can look like that's very obvious, like, hey, you're obviously avoiding this situation, this person, this thing. Uh, you'll know this sometimes when there's something going on with a person. You say, hey, how are you today? And they give you an answer, like, good, but they won't make eye contact. They won't talk with you. They won't linger, and they always do. You're like, okay, what's going on? They're avoiding me, and I don't know why. So, you feel it even if you think you're hiding it. Subtle ways. This would look like altering a situation to avoid issues. It could look like removing yourself, like, hey, I'm going to go to the bathroom and 30 minutes later playing on your phone. It could look like, um, hey, I'm gonna, I just got to run a quick errand and you stop by three stores on your way. Um, it could look like any number of very subtle uh, things. Like It could look like uh, turning on your phone and playing on Facebook or Instagram. It could look like searching the internet, reading ESPN articles, playing video games, watching TV, I knew a guy, he, he goes here, he's been dry, clean now, been dry for a few years, but work was so stressful and home was so stressful, he would convince himself after work, he could just go have just one beer, just one beer. And you know what? I will not even drink the whole thing. I just, real quick, it'll give me a chance to transition my brain from work to home, except for two and three and four hours later, almost every single night of the week, he had a major alcohol problem because he was avoiding withdrawing from the pain of the situation instead of engaging it. But what's going on is his shame is crying out and is afraid because he doesn't know if it's going to work out. Number three, number three. I got to go faster. Attention-seeking control. This 
is when you draw attention to yourself to make happen whatever it is you want to happen. And the reason I do this is because I fear my needs will not be met. And I must take matters into my own hands to get what I believe I need to be okay in the world. Again, there are obvious ways or less obvious ways. So maybe some of the obvious ways um, are, are uh, obvious and negative. Let's put it that way. Like drugs, alcohol, pornography, uh, sleeping around with somebody to get approval. I mean, these are, these are really obvious ways that the Bible says they're destructive. You know they're destructive, and yet you're doing them. There's something in you that says, I'm not enough in the world, so I'm going to go do this thing to cope, to get attention, to, to, to process, to work through. And this, this could be in a subtle way. In the Christian world, this could look like I go to somebody and say, hey, would you just pray for me? And the next thing you know, it's like the next hour, it's just you dumping all of your life stress and all of the stuff going on, which you're really looking for. You're looking for somebody to look at you and say, I'm enough. I'm enough. You're okay. You know that person you go, you go to because you know they're always going to say, oh, you're all right. You go, girl. That's all right. You got this, dude. Come on, man. And they build you up. They pump you up. They tell you what you want to hear. This looks like getting a degree in ministry so you can stand on front of a stage in front of thousands of people and talk to them every single Sunday. You have a captivated audience. They have to listen to you. And then he's being stressed all day, just wanting one of them, just one of them to say, hey, great sermon today, Pastor. I mean, I'm just saying, I know guys like this, just like this. Um, <laughs> this looks like going on Facebook. And posting every ounce of your life on there, like, nobody cares that you were at Starbucks, nobody cares you cut your grass, why do you feel the need to keep doing this? This looks like the teenage, especially girl, but it's true with guys. With guys, it's usually sports, but with girls, it's that girl who's always got a boyfriend. She's always with somebody because she's desperately looking for someone to say, you're beautiful, honey, you're okay, you're okay. You see the way it works? I don't trust that God is going to meet all of my needs. And so I take matters in my own hands and I go look for something that I'm supposed to turn to God for. Last one, last one. Perfectionistic control, perfectionistic control. This is when you do things in a specific way to get specific outcomes. This is the hardest one to diagnose because we're all in denial about what it is and what it really is going on. So the reason I do this is because I have a fear that my world would be too chaotic or unmanageable if I do not. So in very clear ways, it'd be OCD behavior, right? It's that those things that I do, like, ah, all my desk has to be clear. My everything has to be in order. My closet, you go in, your shirts are perfectly lined. Pants are perfectly lined. Everything has to be a certain way at a certain time. I got to keep my suit on right. You know, the hair's always right. Makeup's always right. Whatever it is, like everything has to be perfect to my world because if it's not, I feel out of control. My car always has to be washed. The inside, there could be no dirt or dust or trash or anything in it because I just don't feel comfortable in the world when it's not. I got to make my bed first thing in the morning and has to be pristine. And if I don't, I just feel like my whole day is messed up if I don't. It's perfectionistic control. I don't feel safe in the world. And this is one thing that I can control or many things I can control to make my world safe. Again, uh, there are many obvious subtle ways in there, dieting, habits, working out, you name it, all these different things. So what's going on? The drive behind all of these things is fear and anxiety that the world is not going to unfold the way I believe it has to unfold for me to feel safe. So I'm going to take matters in my hands. But what happens when I do that is I make everybody else feel unsafe. You ever heard the word manipulation? Recently, I was on the phone with a friend, and he said, I just feel like my wife is manipulating me into this decision that I don't want to make, but I don't feel like I have a choice. I said, well, first of all, you always have a choice. But second of all, stop looking at it as manipulation. Because when you couch it as manipulation, you've already judged her motives or why she's doing what she's doing. And you may do it, but you won't do it out of love. But look at it as fear. Your spouse is afraid of something. There's this deep and profound anxiety that's running her heart and life. And as a byproduct of that, she needs you now more than ever. So instead of feeling manipulated, 
See it as an opportunity to serve her. Do you see how this works? So since we either learn these behaviors directly from our parents or, here's the other alternative, we learn them as a byproduct of a hole that was in our life at some point. Something happened to create a trauma in our life, and we learned I'm not okay in the world unless I take matters into my own hands. So then we do one of these things, and it worked out, and you go, oh, I could do that again. And what happens is multiply that now over days, weeks, months, and years, and you have a pattern, a habit of doing that. So what do we do? Well, this isn't everything, right? I'm starting you down a path, and I'm trusting the Spirit to lead you because you're His, not mine. But let me just give you three very quick tips that I could easily spend an hour each on, but I'm just going to do quickly. Number one, number one, how do we break generational sin patterns? First thing you have to do is you have to replace fear of man with fear of God. You have to turn your fear into faith. The Bible says fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom. It's not the end of wisdom. It's the beginning. It's the first step. Go all the way back to the garden if you listened last week. If not, you'll have to catch up by listening to last week. What happened in the garden was Adam and Eve stopped focusing their worship on God, started focusing on self and listening to the enemy. What we have to do if we want to go back to that place where sin and shame doesn't reign anymore is we have to go back and we have to flip it, flip the script around. So you know what? I'm going to come back to where Adam and Eve should have been in the garden. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to be afraid of him. What the Bible says, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8 or 10 in that range, is it says something to the effect of, it says, uh, perfect love casts out fear. So fear is not a part of my life with God. Because I fear him first, I believe he is with me, for me, and if you're a Christian, in me. He literally goes with me everywhere I go. He's my traveling Jesus. He's with me everywhere I go. So I don't have anything to be afraid of because he's never going to fail me. And if the worst of the worst, whatever in your mind that is, the worst of the worst happens, he's no less good and he's no less with me. I will be and I am okay. But because of that, I don't have to control the world and everybody else in it. I only have to be faithful in this moment to whatever the right thing to do is to please my heavenly father. Make sense? Because there's a huge difference between living for obedience to please your heavenly father and living in such a way that you try to control everybody else and everything else around you. Peter says this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must. It's not like a good idea. It's not like a happy suggestion. Hey, it might go better for you if. You must live as God's obedient children. The reason our lives feel out of control is because we stopped obeying God. And it's not just me. You did too. We all stopped obeying God. That's why the world is out of control. But if we would all obey God, what would happen? Now, the problem is I can't make you obey God. That's what's broken. I'm trying to make you obey God. But instead, I just need to do what? Obey God. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. You know what I love about that statement? Give yourself grace. You didn't know any better. You didn't know any better. You were just doing the best that you knew to do. But now, you must be holy in everything you do. 
just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. You know why that's powerful? Because I tend to think when I'm having a conflict with somebody else that God is for me more than them. Or at least that's all I want it to be, right? Mercy for me, justice for you. I want God. So when I, when I paint my story in my head of why I'm right and you're wrong, and I start talking myself through the narrative, there's a reason I'm right and you're wrong. But these verses, and there's lots of them, that say the same thing. God is not for me and against you. God is for me and for you. And that's true even of my enemies, which is why the Christian message is different than any other message in the world from a religion. Because it's God saying, I'm for your enemies too. In the same way that you were once my enemy and I was for you, I'm for them. That changes the way I interact with everybody. Because instead of me getting what I want, it's about God getting what he knows is best. For me, for you, for everybody. So, God plays no favorites. He will judge, don't miss this, or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. In other words, this world, we're just passing through. This is our stopping point, 50 years, 60 years, 80 years. If you're maybe lucky, I don't know if you call that lucky, 100 years. I don't want to be here 100 years, but whatever your time frame is, this is a temporary home before you go an eternal one that will never end. Like this is short. It's a blip. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. Wow, it's right there in the Bible. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. God chose him as your... Yeah, you can clap for that. Amen. God chose him as your ransom, don't miss this, long before the world began. Okay, maybe this is the only thing you'll hear today. Before God created the foundations of the earth, he knew you. And he knew exactly how he was going to save you. And he knew exactly what he was going to be saving you from. Before the first piece was built. So if that's true, do you think God can handle whatever you're dealing with right now? You may not even believe in God. Right? Maybe you believe in just a higher power, some intelligent being out there somewhere, but you just don't know him as a personal loving savior. Maybe it's because you're still trying to be in control. But the God that I'm calling you to worship, the God, the only God, he literally has the whole world in the palm of his hand. And he has for all of time and eternity. And that's a thought so big, it makes my brain hurt. But it's from this standpoint that Jesus could say, listen, if the birds and the flowers survive, you're going to make it okay. But now in these last days, Jesus has been revealed for your sake. You know why? As I woke up two days ago. While my wife was out of town, I woke up before my boys, and uh, sometimes I wake up and like I'll just I'll just hear a thought in my head, and I know it's God encouraging me for the day. But I went to bed, having written this sermon very late into the morning, and um, it's still on my brain. So I woke up, and the very first thing I heard God say it was like the first words, was Matt, do you know that my holiness isn't just about sin and no sin? 
My holiness is about how I'm different than anything and anyone you've ever met. My holiness is about my love, too. That was powerful. I mean, we think of holiness in terms of when you do and don't do the right things, and that's absolutely true. But one of the, uh, one of the most famous passages that God describes in Isaiah 58, I think, he says, uh, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. And as far as I am above the heavens, my ways are above your ways. Read the rest of that chapter, wherever it is. I don't know if it's Isaiah 50 or not. Wherever it is, find it, read it. You know why? Because the whole thing is about God's forgiveness. The whole chapter, that's what it's about. God is saying, I am not like you. I don't, I'm not patient like you. <laughs> I'm not forgiving like you. You know, you show favorites. I don't have a favorite. And my love isn't like your love. You can trust me. I am good all the time. Okay, number two. You're like, number two, that right there, we just end right there. I know, but I got more to say. Number two, stop clearing webs, start killing spiders. Here's where this came from. I, I get no credit for this, but here's where this came from. So a couple weeks ago, I was ahead on my sermon prep for the week, and normally I take Wednesdays and I write, then I take Thursday time and I write, and like it's due no later than 8 a.m. Friday, and the team that creates the slides, God bless you all, I love you guys, you're amazing, because I'm rare, yeah, they're amazing, seriously, yeah, clap for that, a spontaneous clap, that was amazing, um, because they have to put up with me, and um, yes, and you know, right, those of you who know me, you know. Here's the thing. So because I had had a lot of prep work done, I took a, a few hours that day, and I just started listening to some other stuff to feed my soul and give myself some thoughts. Since I don't get to sit in a room and hear somebody teach me, I have to go find people to teach me. And man, that day I found a podcast by Kerry Newhoff. Highly recommend it. Kerry Newhoff, he's in Canada. He's a pastor. Used to work at North Point for them at a church plant. And uh, he's a phenomenal interviewer. He finds Christian leaders of pastors and authors, and he interviews them. And so there's a lot of stuff he talks about you won't care about, but if you want to enter my world and find the stuff that I care about, he talks about it. And this one particular interview, he interviewed a guy named Carlos Whitaker. He's famously known as Los. Los used to be a blogger. I know some of you are too young to know what a blog is. A blog was an online journal where people would just write out their thoughts. And his blog became very, very popular in the Christian leadership world circle. And lots of people writing about it, talking about it. You go to any conference in my world, Catalyst Conference and all the North Point conferences, all those. Los was always there, always speaking. Everybody was talking about how amazing it was. And I remember thinking a couple times, like, I don't even know who this dude is. How the world did he become famous from just writing online? Like, how does that even happen? Honestly, there's a little jealousy in my heart about it. What was going on privately in his life is he had, a, if I'm telling the story correctly, he had a private addiction to pornography that eventually led him to adultery that led him to cheating on his wife. And he's being interviewed, so I'm not telling you anything that he doesn't say publicly. I think I have all the details, right? Um, his wife and his kids left him, and he thought it was over. And eventually, he ended up at a treatment facility. And right before he went in, he called his dad on the phone, and his dad was a pastor. And his dad said, son, I need to tell you a story. And he's like, dad, I have to go in. I got a time. Like, I have to be there. I'm an appointment. And he's like, no, son, you need to hear this. <laughs> okay, great. So his, son, his dad said, now back in the day, they used to do these um, um, revival weeks. And what would happen is preachers would show up. Some of you grew up in church in this day, and the preacher would preach, and people would come like every night after work and listen to the preacher preach. Could you imagine? Trust me, I could feel your time. And um, at the end of those nights, a lot of times there was an altar call. People would respond and come forward and that kind of thing. And at the end of this one night, this lady came forward, and she said, Pastor, I need you to pray for me. Just pray that God will clear the cobwebs out of my life. And the pastor prayed for her, and God, just free this lady. And whatever's going on, I don't know, clear all the cobwebs. Felt good about the night. Went home the next night. He preached again. She came back. She came forward. She said, Pastor, it didn't work. I just need you to pray. Pray that God will clear out the cobwebs. Sure enough, prayed. He prayed harder. Prayed louder because that makes God work harder. And um, <laughs> went home the next night. Guess who came up again? 
And she came up again and said, Pastor, I just need you to pray. Just pray. The conference is almost done. I just need you to pray. Pray God will clear out the cobwebs. He said, no more. No. Tonight, we pray that God will kill the spider. And he said to his son before he went into this treatment facility, he said, son, it's time to kill the spider. You've been chasing down cobwebs. You've been chasing down symptoms. It's time to kill the spider. Listen, all these controlling behaviors I just shared with you, they are symptoms. They are not the problem. You don't need to run home today and stop being aggressively controlling everything. You need to start finding out what is it that's driving me towards this? Why do I feel unsafe, insecure in the world? Where does this come from? The interviewer, Carrie, he asked uh, Los, he said, so can you tell us some ways some spiders you've killed and how that came about? And he said, right now, at this point, I start every day with a simple prayer. God, would you show me today if there's any spiders in my life I need to kill? And he said, here's what I mean by that. Is there anywhere in my life that I've replaced the truth of God with a lie? Because Jesus says, the truth will set you free. So what I want to do, God, is I want to flip the script. I want to locate the lie that I believe. I want to replace it with the truth about who you say I am, how you're going to provide, how you're going to come through, how you're with me, how it's all going to happen in your timing, even though I wish it happened in my timing, and one day I hope I get to advise you on this. I want to, I want to trust you to be all that you said you are and are going to be in my life. So God, I'm going to replace this lie with this truth. So God, if there's any spiders, help me to find them and kill them. Paul says it this way, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Say it with me. How often? More when I feel like it. Come on now. Isn't that how we practice this passage? Let your gentleness be evident to all, except for your kids when they drive you crazy. Because the Lord is... Do you hear how all this works? I mean, he's right there. He's not distant. He's not at the other house on the other side of the world, busy somewhere else, like, hey, I'll be there in a minute like you are with your kids. No, he is right there for you, for me, always, all the time. I can call on him, draw on him. He wants to give me the power, the energy, the wisdom, the insight, the input, the peace, whatever I need. He's there to give it to me. He is the source of my power and my strength. So do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, what Paul means, we pray and we keep praying. God may be saying, I'm working on it, but it's not time yet. Or I need to do it, but not the way you wanted. And sometimes he just says, no, I don't like that ask. You have a selfish ambition there. I can't give that to you. So what we're going to do with, with thanksgiving, present a request to God. What do you mean by thanksgiving? Here's the way I practice the thanksgiving part. I, I try every day throughout the day multiple times to just say thank you, God. Every prayer with my kids, whether it's a food or right before bed, God, just thank you. Thank you for this. Thank you for this. What I want to do is I want to look for the activity of God in the world because God is not absent. God is in your life and in your situation and in your story and in your pain. And whatever's going on in your life, God is there. Look for him. And even if you don't know how he's going to solve what you're dealing with, just say, thank you, God, because I don't know what you're going to do here. I trust you, and here's how I'm going to trust you. I thank you because I saw you here today. I saw you here. I saw you here. And if you've got nothing else, just look up at the sky. I see the clouds. I see the sun. I see the moon. I see the flowers. I see the snow. I see the rain. All these things are examples, God, that you are here. You are good. I trust you. I wish you'd work faster, but I trust you if you don't. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds of Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, replace the lie with the truth. 
Whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such Stop thinking about all the ways that you've been hurt. Stop thinking about all the ways that everybody else around you is failing you, hurting you, messing things up. And replace those lies with the truth, even the truth about them. You know, when, just by the way, when your spouse or your kids are driving you absolutely bonkers with something, start thinking about all the amazing things about them. Trust me, there's at least one. Focus on that. I know, sometimes it's hard. Think about that. And by the way, I'll just say this. God has told me lately, hey, Matt, I want you to go out of your way to celebrate that. I have watched my wife come alive when I, just over the last few weeks when I just started. Whatever the one or two or 10 or 20 or 50 things are, she has so many amazing qualities. When I just start looking at her saying, you know what I love about you? I love when you do this. You know what is amazing about you when you do this? You know what? You are the perfect mom for me, for these boys, wife for me. You're just, you're an amazing. I, just, I stopped talking about all the things that maybe drive me bonkers. Not that my wife does any of those. But it's amazing. It's amazing how this beautiful woman comes alive. So whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Paul says, put it into practice. I feel, like I, I feel like that here. In a lot of ways, I feel like a father. Look, whatever you've seen in me or heard from me, anything I've ever done, if it's wisdom for you, just put it into practice. Do it. And the God of peace will be with you. The last one, I'll be very quick. Last one is this. Walk in the power of God's spirit. So in the garden, you chose to align yourself with the enemy. But God has been on a mission to bring you back to his team. When you come to Jesus, for those of you who haven't done it yet, we'll tell you how to do that in just a minute. When you come to Jesus, you go from the enemy's team to the Savior's team. And when you're on his team, he says, I'm not only with you, I'm in you. Now, there are many, many, many passages in the New Testament that says, and now God's spirit is contending against your spirit and against the spirits of this world and against Satan and his evil dominions. So all these things that are working against you, God is in you, and greater is he who is in you and who, he who is in the world. So God's spirit is contending with you to get you to surrender to him. Notice this verse in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Notice this. Peter says, By his divine power, God has given us most of the things that we might need every day for living a godly life. Some of you aren't paying attention. If you're listening online, that's not what it says. God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. It's all ready in you. When you've got Jesus, you have everything you need. But I don't know how to deal with this. I don't doubt that you need some training and wisdom and insight. I've never dealt with this before. Okay. But the one who's in you is also called your counselor, your friend, and he wants to speak to you. The more of him you study and put into your body, the more the spirit could draw on. And then you start to hear that still small voice, that voice who cries out and says, no, 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 back off. No, no, you're being too harsh. No, you're being too pushy. No, you're being too this. Just have to take a deep breath. I'm with you. We got this. You'll be okay. I love you. Because we've received all of this by coming to know him. The one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. We're going to take communion now. And um, two things. Number one, if you've never given your life to Jesus, even if you're watching online. Look, if you're in the room right now with us, you've never accepted Christ. That peace is waiting for you. But without Christ, you can't get that peace by trying harder. So listen. 
Any time between now and the end of the service, if you want to go to my left, your right, just go into that big, tall, orange mat right there. I guess I have to go, like, right here. Is that it? And uh, we'd love to talk to you about how to receive Jesus. If you're sitting at home, whether it's now, live, or years from now, if you just text 77977, 77977, and text the word baptism, we will talk to you all about how to receive Christ, become one with him in baptism, and what it means to have a relationship with him. For the rest of us, as we go into communion today, if you're at home, run to the cabinet, grab some crackers, juice, the redder the better, whatever. Take some time right now and just be with your heavenly father. If there's something you need to do as a result of this, then ask him for the strength and the courage to do it. And if there's something you just need to have peace about because God's with you, then just take a deep breath and know that he is with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that we're celebrating and sitting here right now that you are with us. This bread, this juice is a constant reminder of your goodness and your grace and your mercy. There are not enough words to tell you how thankful we are. Father, I thank you for this little baby over here that's just crying right now. God, life is so precious, so beautiful. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for our kids. Thank you, God, for our parents. You know what? They're broken and messed up just like us. But thank you, God, that you didn't leave us stuck in our sin. You saved us. You redeemed us, God, because you're so good. Make our hearts thankful with praise. In Jesus' name.